Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 64, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Now, um, I imagine we've got quite a few new listeners this week, so uh, welcome on board if you are a newbie to the Retro Hour. Uh, based on the fact that we were number three in the iTunes podcast chat last week. Which is amazing, and I would say that's down to our guest, but also our wonderful show, which <laughs> was Ashen. Yeah, we did have Stuart Ashen on the show last week, so if you did just discover us then, as there were so many new listeners, you know, IP addresses and towns and cities that we'd never seen before, do make it a regular thing every Friday. And of course, an equally warm welcome if you do check out the show every week anyway. And uh, of course, we do try and bring you amazing guests every week. And I think this week... You're going to enjoy this guy's stories. Now, um, I think it's fair to say the guest we've got this week is the ultimate console modder. Yeah, this is the modder king, and his name is Ben Heck, and he's from Element 14, if you know these guys, and they're all over YouTube. He's actually repairing the Nintendo PlayStation at the moment. The original prototype that was discovered, of course, a couple of years ago. I think that says a lot about Ben, that the guys who've probably got the rarest console prototype in existence went to Ben to get it working. Yeah, they're like, go mad. (laughs) (laughs) And he's there soldering it and all that. It's crazy, but you know, he's built amazing stuff. So he's built a portable Dreamcast. He's built a C64 laptop. Yeah. uh, Even an Xbox One laptop. And he made the virtual boy into the virtual man, improved the design of that recently. Yeah, totally. And this week, I mean, Ravi, your lifelong dream, May come true, because you're going to ask Ben Heck if he will uh, consider building you an Amiga laptop. Oh, totally. An Amiga laptop is a dream for me, and I think it's a dream for many of us, because people over the years have been creating monstrosities and, <laughs> um, you know, kind of cardboard boxes. and Suitcases. All suitcases with all this kind of stuff in. And I think Ben could do a really good job with him, so I've kind of, you know, put the pressure on, sent him a few emails, pictures like, come on, Ben, to try and get him activated and see what he can do. Yeah, and it looks like he's quite interested, actually, doesn't it? So, yeah, definitely. Um, you'll hear the moment when Ravi asks him in this week's show. So Ben Heck is our special guest. He's by far one of my favourite YouTubers. I can just, you know, his videos are quite long, but I can just sit there and, like, you know, when it finishes, I'm like, no more! It's, it's like solder porn, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it's that kind of hardware porn. You can just look at it and go, ooh. Even though you don't really know what's going on. A <laughs> lot of 3D printers as well, which is always Yeah, cool. yeah. So Ben Heck is going to be our very special guest on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. Now also recently we had a bit of a first on this show, we gave away a computer. We gave away a computer but in parts you have to yeah. put it together yourself. <laughs> That's how nerdy we are. Really yeah. So this was the uh, RC2014 Build It Yourself Z80 computer. We've had so many entries on this, it's been nuts. But oh, yeah. we have selected a winner and the question we asked you was, what does the Z in Z80 stand for? And the answer was Zilog. Of course it was Zilog. Now, uh, we've used our random number generator and selected at random to win this from all the correct entries. Congratulations, Rob Pickersgill. Oh, congratulations, Rob. And you know, we would love to see a picture of it working in in whatever state it is (laughs) after you've put it together. Get your soldering iron warmed up and uh, check your inbox for an email. We'll uh, get your details and get that in the post too very soon. And of course, we'll have more giveaways on future shows. You know, we always like to give a little back, don't we? Yeah, totally. Because we appreciate, you know, you giving us something as well. Now, where every week on the show, um, we do the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And making the list this week are people that have made really generous donations to the show. The people who help us continue bringing you the show every week and help pay for our server costs, studio time, all that kind of thing. And this week, thank you so much for your donations, Ian Guthrie. Walter Hermans. Jeffrey Hancock and Colin Walker who all made generous donations to the podcast this week thank you so much for that guys and if you'd like to do the same it'll take you five seconds if you want to put just a couple of quid a couple of dollars a couple of euros in the tip jar all you've got to do is head to our website theretrohour.com and there is another way you could support the show as well yeah you could just go to theretrohour.com forward slash vote and type in the Retro Hour, and that will enter us for the British Podcast Awards which are coming up soon we've got to go to London and we've Got to wear suits and... (laughs) Got to get drunk. (laughs) Oh, God, yeah, (laughs) the effort. But, I mean, actually, you know, we're recording this show on, uh, what is that, Wednesday at the moment. Comes out on Friday, so by the time the show's released, we'll know if we've been nominated for uh, one of the categories. And also, there is another category as well, which is uh, the listener's choice. So, if you do vote for us in that, you know, um, I think they're doing like a top ten as well. So, every vote is really appreciated in this, guys. You know, literally, it's so easy to do. You just type our name in, that's it. And uh, you'll find that at theretrohour.com forward slash vote. And speaking of, uh, you know, things that we've been doing online this week, um, 
We've got an Instagram account. We're so late to the game. <laughs> Seriously. We've got how, like, long, how long has it been going? 10 years? Yeah, yeah 10 years <laughs> and we've got about 10 followers. Yeah. <laughs> One per year. But um, yeah, I've started tweeting some kind of interesting stuff. I was just thinking, oh, you know, when I'm playing with hardware, I might yeah. as well take a picture of it and send it out. So, Well, I'll tell you what, Ravi. Let, while we're doing this now, okay. We'll do a little... Get my phone. Should we a little selfie? little selfie in okay. the studio. Smile, Here we go. Best smile. Raise your cup. Ooh. Ooh, about 200 pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I'll upload the best one. So yeah. if you do want to follow us on there, all you got to do is search for Retro Hour UK. Yep. That's what Re- we're on Instagram. That's it. Very simple. And we've got one more thing to announce, which is Oliver Twins are doing a full exhibition. These are the guys behind Dizzy. They're doing a full exhibition at the National Video Games Arcade about Dizzy with items from their home in the past and they're kind of recreating an 80s living room or bedroom that's going to have, you know, all the Oliver Twins items in there and when they were coding. And they're going to do International Dizzy Day to launch that. So that'll be on the 8th of April in Nottingham at the National Video Game Arcade. And I shall be down there and... uh, Pop down if you want it. It should be good fun. It's going to be next Saturday then, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah uh, Saturday the 8th of April. I'm away, unfortunately, then. Um, not complaining. I'm going to Norway, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's going to be amazing. So, I mean, Oliver Twins, we had them on the show last year. Really interesting guys. Yeah, and uh, Aaron from RGDS Podcast is going to pop down. So, you know, there'll be a few people and we can have a good chat. Don't be a bad influence on him, Ravi. Am He's I? a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll pop that in our show notes at theretrohour.com if you want to find out more. Right then, before we get to Ben Heck, um, a few very interesting stories that have been catching our attention this week, including uh, something for my beloved Apple Watch. Yeah, because Dan, to be honest, he got this iWatch and he hasn't been using it much. He's had it on his wrist, but uh, it's not had that much use, but I think now there may be a new lease of life in it. Now I can turn it into a Game Boy. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Come on, a Game Boy on your wrist. Now, I, I do remember about a year ago, um, there was that, you know, someone ported Doom to it, didn't it, when it first came out? Yeah. Which was pretty cool. But this, uh, now this is a blog, and this guy, is um, his name is Gabriel. Um, <laughs> very Irish name, Ofla Khan. And he's gone through so many jumps and hoops to get this working. It's nuts. But what he's essentially got is a Pokemon game on the Game Boy Color running on the Apple Watch. Is this like, does he have to jailbreak it? Does he have to kind of install naughty illegal apps and all of this kind of stuff? Well, because I thought that. And, you know, his blog is about like 20 pages long. Yeah. And I thought originally, like, is there a jailbreak for the Apple Watch? I mean, I'm not really into jailbreaking anymore. You know, I mm. used to, when I first got my iPhone back in the day, you know, before the App Store launch and all that. Yeah, yeah. You mess around with Springboard and Winterboard and all that, and your phone would crash every five minutes. <laughs> I don't bother with it these days. But um, I was looking into it, and it seems, because, you know, Apple don't let you run like alien code. Or yeah, yeah. Emulate they they really. really don't like it. They make it their job to stop you running code, you know. Yeah. Um, but what he's actually done, I mean... You know, I'm not going to go into technical details because I can't understand them. Uh, but I've been reading it. Essentially, it goes through about five different layers to eventually get to, you know, something that will run via the iPhone on the Apple Watch. So he runs something on one platform that will talk to another one that talks to another one that talks to another <laughs> Jesus. one. So at the moment, it is, I mean, <laughs> he says it is painfully slow at the moment. It's not really in a playable state. But he's done a lot. He's actually got, you know, considering the Apple Watch is... Uh, you know, I think it's like 42 millimetres. It's yeah. really small. It's like, it's like a proof of concept, isn't it? Because he's managed to get the buttons in there as well. Yeah, there's not on-screen really D-pad. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's so cool. <laughs> you need dainty little fingers to play with that. But it just, we love seeing stuff like that, you know, hardware being like, you know, yeah. used in ways that it shouldn't be is always cool. And I guess he can optimise it in the future and, you know, maybe more people get involved and then he'll get sued by Nintendo and it'll be taken down. Yeah, Apple will shut it down. Yeah. Well, patch the way he did it, you know, like yeah. we always do. But, you know, for the meantime, he's got a lot of video of it working, actually, which is very cool. And we'll put that in this week's show notes, as always. Uh, something else you'll find there as well, um, this is always been a dream of mine to own an arcade cabinet at home oh yeah that would be beautiful and you know you can kind of get these original ones and it could be a nightmare yeah to kind of yeah. to get modern stuff and they got to saw them a bits and all that yeah yeah and you know all of these retro shows i go to there's always arcade cab bits here and there and there's always guys looking for bits well this company is doing custom arcade cabinets and they're kind of in the style of each game. So, you know, you, you'd get a Pac-Man and it would be the kind of Pac-Man colours and go faster stripes down the side. But also, they look they look quite nice. They've, uh, they've got an LCD screen in there. 
which eh, we want CRT. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's four by three, though, so they are keeping the aspect ratio. Yeah, they're not all widescreen and yeah. yeah. But it looks, I mean, like you said, I mean, they kind of do them in, you know, the joysticks and the buttons are all, like, different colours. And uh, the look, actually, you know, quite a modern look for an arcade cabinet, I think. Yeah, definitely, definitely. They don't look like a old arcade cabinet at all, mm. to be honest. Nothing that, it doesn't look like you've dragged it out of the back of an arcade in Blackpool from 30 years ago. No, no, no it looks like your hipster's office yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, it, it doesn't look cheap. It look, you know, they're quite glossy, aren't they, as well? They haven't um, got a price on their website, have they, Dan? Yeah, we've been looking around <laughs> to try to find the prices. The fact that there is no price listed and they're kind of a, a trendy London design company leads me to believe they're probably quite expensive. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if this would be as flexible as a MAME cabinet. You I don't know. even know what they run on, to be fair. Yeah, they don't really give you much detail, do they, on the, on this article that we're looking at here on Curved. It's more, I think it's more aiming at, like you know, like you said, the fashionista kind of hipster yeah, market. Yeah, that'd be it. Oh, I'll have that four-poster bed in the arcade cabinet and the, yeah, just yeah. walking around the shop, you know. Yeah, exactly, yeah, to, to go my penthouse. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, just from, you know, a bit of arcade porn, you could say, if you want to look at these uh, these cabinet designs, they are very cool, so we'll uh, we'll put those at theretrohour.com. Now, this, I'm so pleased to hear. Being someone who loved Sega back in the day, and I cannot wait until Sonic Mania comes out in a couple of months' time. Mm. You know, that new, uh, the old new Sonic game they're bringing out. Um, that I'm going to be playing my, on my Nintendo Switch. It comes out at the end of May. But there is actually a new game released for the Mega Drive, and it looks amazing. This looks insane. Like, they're saying this is the biggest, largest Mega Drive uh, car ever produced. This is 80 megabytes. Wow. So that, that is nuts. And this is a game called Paprium. Paprium, and it supports 25 levels, five players, co-op, the save function. But also... It looks bloody amazing. It looks like Marvel vs. Capcom with like 10 times more <laughs> layers of stuff on top. It it just looks like if it was released in, back in the day, it would have kicked Street Fighter's ass. Well, I mean, graphically as well, I mean, it's, it kind of reminds me quite a lot of Streets of Rage 2. But, you know, obviously better graphics. Even stuff like you pick crowbars up and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to check the music out for it as well? Oh, I don't know epic. if this is in the game. This is on the trailer. Check this out. <laughs> Yes. I just want to fight hearing that music. <laughs> yeah, it just looks insane. I, I can't really say any more about this other than buy it when it comes out. Well, this is a team called uh, Watermelon Games, and they've actually done a few like kind of indie releases on the Mega Drive over the last couple of years, but um, there's one called uh, PS Solar and The Great Architects uh, back in 2010, but they've been working on this game for four years now. It's quite good because all these Mega Drive games that are coming out, I know there's stuff coming out for the Dreamcast and stuff, but a lot of it's like re-releases. All these Mega Drive games that are coming out at the moment are absolutely wicked and they are to the level, they're like beyond retail level, I think some of them, you know. Absolutely. That Tanglewood one that was getting developed at the moment, all in assembly, that looks fantastic and this following it is just insane. And they're putting it out on, like, you know, an, a proper cartridge, and it's got the label on, and even the box has got, you know, the Mega Drive stripe down the side and all that. It looks like, you know, like a, a retail game from 1993. Yeah, and I'm sure they'll probably do a Genesis version as well for the Americans. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will, but it's, uh, you know, having a new boxed Mega Drive game on cartridge in 2017, that is, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, and this one looks like really good co-op fun as well. Yeah, well, I like Streets of Rage too. I mean, you know, I never get bored of playing that. No, Golden yeah. Axe, you can go forever. <laughs> so uh, we'll keep an eye on that, let you know when we get a release date on it. Uh, something you probably won't want to download, though. Yeah. <laughs> Plumbers don't wear ties. You ever heard of that? <laughs> yes, I've heard of that. I think it was AVGN did a video about it that kind of made it quite famous, didn't he, like years ago? It uh, was one of these uh, kind of sexy dating games, but on a CD-ROM, wasn't it? It was on the um, 3DO, wasn't it? That was the, the original ah, platform. Ah, yes. Came out in 1994, and, you know, the thing about the 3DO is it actually had quite a lot of kind of um, adult games on there. Because, you know, unlike Nintendo had very strict rules about what you could bring out on their platform, 3DO just wanted as many developers as possible, so there's no real, like, quality control. Didn't you go for a few on your YouTube video? Yeah. And well, there's yeah. a bit where it's like, I hold on to your love clumps or something <laughs> like that. It's really bad. Yeah, I think that was the, uh, yeah, the Joy of Sex book, actually. Yeah. They made, a, like, you know, an FMV version of that. There is some very weird stuff on there. Yeah. Um, but this game, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean... It's not really adult. It's an interactive romantic adventure. Yeah. Uh, comedy, that's what they say. Awful. I mean, it's like, you know, do you remember those like, really naff American sitcoms like The Bold and the Beautiful? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of that quality of acting. 
I'm going to play a little bit of this now, okay? Here's a little bit of dialogue off it, because it, was, um, it wasn't really full FMV, it was just stills, photos. It's, of, like, it's kind of like they got models to do all the stuff, you know. Definitely didn't get actors. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> that music. Yeah, Ma. What are you wearing today? My birthday suit. Very funny. I want you to wear that nice tie I bought for you. The polka dot tie? Get out of here. That sucks. What did you say? Uh, it, it's seersucker. I, I hate seersucker. Polka dots are not seersucker. Just wear it. It'll make a good impression. On who? The rats? Ma, I'm a plumber. Remember? Just do it for your mother. Ma. John. This is meant to be a comedy. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that, I'm afraid. Um, did you hear the stereo separation? Yeah, that was pretty good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at my shoulder. Is he there? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so... This came out on the 3DO, and everyone thought that was the only platform. You know, coming out one platform was probably enough for that game, to be fair. Mm. But it turns out they're also working on a PC version of the game as well, <laughs> which has now been unearthed. A guy on YouTube called Psychotic Giraffe has released a video of him playing the PC version of this game that was previously thought lost. You know how he found it? He said there was no evidence except for a few screenshots. So he's kind of like, oh, this game must have been out there in existence. So... He searched through the WorldCat database, which lists as library inventories. And it showed that um, one library, Ball State University, right. had never thrown away their PC version. So, so it didn't get released, but they, got, they had a copy of it at that university in their archives. Yeah. And he went along and asked for it. Yeah. Like, why on earth <laughs> you got so much effort to tra- track down that game? I've got no idea. But he's actually put all the files up if you want to download them. They're on archive.org now. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so I love this as well because I'm in PC Gamer. It was one of their um, early online reviews. Uh, well, actually, in the magazine, PC Gamer, July 1994, they gave it 3% <laughs> on the 3DO. So the lowest score to this day they've ever given a game. Yeah, it looks pretty shocking. So uh, if you do, if you are feeling, you know, a little bit... <laughs> well, suicidal, and <laughs> then you play on that. A bit sadistic or something over <laughs> yeah. the weekend. You can download this game. I can't imagine. I mean, there was actually someone on YouTube who's played this through, and it's about a three-hour game. Oh, my God. I don't know, I don't know how anyone wants to sit through that, but um, if you do, we'll pop up and share that this week as well. Now, let's finish off this week's news with uh, a good story. Um, this looks really slick. You found this um, Varcade station. Well, at the Grey Mac informed us, uh, Graham McKenzie on Twitter actually said, guys, check this out, and this looks really cool. It's like one of these kind of fighting sticks, you know, uh, arcade sticks with two sections, but it's a whole unit that um, kind of does HD games. I think it's got over 600 games on it. Yeah, 680, the version 1.1. So this is, like you said, it, it looks like something you could put on your lap or a table. Yeah, like those battle sticks, you know, you had on arcades. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, I've gone for the Dreamcast and, like, the uh, the Xbox 360. But, yeah, there are, like, you know, it's proper arcade sticks, buttons, all-in-one cabinet. Um, but there is actually a computer built inside it with HDMI out. And uh, it's got quite a lot of RAM as well, hasn't it? Yeah, 32 gigabytes. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of a, a powerful ARM processor as well and stuff. So the thing about this is it's it's exactly for your arcade guy just to plug in and go for it. You know, there's no setting up of MAME. All these games are included, and I guess they're probably in the good resolution, and, you know, they're coming out really nicely, and the reactions will be really good. They've got to be with arcade stuff. Yeah, yeah arcade fans are some of the most purists. <laughs> like, you know, get, <laughs> yeah, like, so. And, I mean, you know, it is really good that it comes with, like, 680 games. I'm not sure, you know, if they've officially come down that route or whether they just put them on and hope for the best. But the thing is, with MAME, whenever I set MAME up, one of the biggest challenges, you know, if you don't want to go through and download each game individually or you've got to get, you know, if you get a ROM set, yeah. it's got to be for that exact version of MAME that you got. It's such a headache. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've tried downloading torrents of people's main setups before mm. and I've got 44 gigabyte ones and stuff and they've all been wrecked. And yeah. it's just like, how can I go through all this stuff, you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is one of those occasions where I think having something that's just plug and play does save a lot of headache, doesn't it? Totally, and you know the titles that they've got here, totally different. You can have stuff from Neo Geo, you can have stuff from Mega Drive, you can have stuff just from the arcades. So it's like a total mix. 
Yeah, I mean, the you know, Street Fighters on their mob versus Capcom. Oh, you know, they've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles included, one of my favourite Fatal Fury, games. Bubble Bobble, you know. We were at the, uh, you know, the National Video Game Arcade we talked about earlier um, last year when you were DJing there, weren't you, yeah. in reception? And I walked around the corner and they had a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arcade cabinet and it was free play. Oh, okay. So that's why you didn't see me for about two hours. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That's but, where you disappeared. But too. it was awesome. I was playing it and this kid just came up to me. He must have been about like 10. And he just like, you know, started playing on the other stick. Yeah. And I was like, suddenly got transported to be like, you know, a kid again. I was like, wow, this is cool. Right, like, I'm going to beat him. <laughs> yeah, 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 I'm going to batter him. <laughs> like, Come away from that strange man, dear. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this arcade station looks incredible. So It does. Uh, and it's a bit expensive, but it's quite a, a reasonable price if you're an arcade nutter. Yeah, well, it looks really good as well. It looks well made and they've got like, you know, nice um, artwork and stuff on it too. So maybe you've got like a birthday coming up or something, you know. Yeah, yeah. Presents. So uh, thank you for checking out episode number 64 of the Retro Hour podcast. And of course, guys, if you do get a minute, we appreciate a quick vote in the British Podcast Awards. Uh, we'll update you on uh, how we're doing next week on that. Just head to the retrohour.com forward slash vote. Yeah, and also check us out on Twitter because on Twitter we ask a lot of people to come on the podcast and you know you guys can get involved it's quite good actually we yeah. ask someone to come on the podcast and then about five of our listeners go go on go on go on and it kind of encourages them yeah absolutely so uh, we could do some more followers on Twitter what are we about 800 yeah I think so uh, considering we get over like 20,000 listeners a month there <laughs> you know we could do with a few more on Twitter at Retro Hour UK and uh, of course check us out on Facebook search for the Retro Hour podcast get us on all your social media networks if you have any of the links are on our website as well right then are you ready to get really nerdy about console modding oh totally here he is Ben Heck, this week's special guest, and we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and we are so excited for this week's guest. Welcome to the show, Ben Heck. How's it going? Yeah, very good, thank you. Now, uh, we're going to talk in a moment about your uh, amazing YouTube channel and these, uh, you know, fantastic, mind-blowing console mods that you do. Um, but I thought it'd be quite nice to kind of get, you know, back to roots and get your earliest memories. So what's kind of your first memory of uh, gaming or computers and where does it all begin for you? Hmm. Earliest computer memories. It'd probably be back or gaming memories. How about you very early 80s? Uh, I remember when the Atari 2600 was pretty popular. Uh, I didn't have one, but a lot of my cousins did, so I could always play their consoles. Probably the first that I can really remember was when Space Invaders, that was a really big hit game on the 2600. I think that was 1980 when that came out. Because I remember that being really big. I remember being the dumb kid who uh, didn't have a quarter to play the arcade machine, but so you just go up and like waggle the joystick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I can kind of remember that area er, era. Uh, but I didn't really get super into gaming until years later when I had both a computer and, uh, of course, the original Nintendo. So did you used to go to the arcades when you were young then? Well, uh, I grew up in a small town, so we didn't have arcades. But that was back when a lot of businesses would have arcade machines in front. I mean, it's it's quite rare nowadays. It's so like over here, uh, you see a lot of the... Uh, coin pusher, string cutter, kitty gambling machines in front of businesses sometimes. But you very rarely see arcade games. And if you do, it's usually like Golden Tee or Big Buck Hunter. Uh, but so, but yeah, back when I was a kid, uh, you know, they'd have like a couple of games in front of the Jay-Z Penny or the Ben Franklin or later on the Walmart. Uh, yeah, or like sometimes like you'd see one at the grocery store and, you know, they, they stuck them everywhere. And it was weird. So basically what well, how that would work is your mom would give you some quarters and you would be occupied playing the video games and she would go shop. But nowadays, I'm sure people would be worried about their kids being kidnapped or some other kind of thing. But back then, it was like the, you know, the babysitter, basically. <laughs> for shopping, Different world back then, wasn't it? <laughs> so are there any games? Yeah, I guess it was. Are there any games that kind of stand out in your memory then from back then that you used to love when you were really young? I remember playing Mario Brothers a lot on the 5200 of all things. Wow. That, that one was really fun. Uh, I, I like pole position because it had, uh, you know, the uh, scaling graphics. I know they, they didn't do it quite the same way that Sega did with Outrun, but uh, it looked better. Not Outrun, uh, Turbo. Hmm. That was that the first Sega scaler game, you know, from like, what, 81 or 82 or something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, back then, you know, there's a lot of Atari stuff. Uh, I really like Sky Shark, the arcade game of that. That was a lot of fun. I know that was a few years later. And then, you know, when the Nintendo came, you know, the home consoles are basically what murdered the arcades. And so when the Nintendo came along, I started, you know, just 
playing the games at home. Were you also into pinball and stuff? I noticed you have a big pinball kind of fascination. Yeah. Um, that was kind of a later thing. I, I did I did find them interesting when I was younger, although back then uh, pinballs were like 50 cents long before the arcade machines went 50 cents. So I was like, oh, man, it's pretty elaborate to, to play this machine. I mean, now I realize the reason they cost 50 cents is because they're so expensive to build. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of something I got into later, well into adulthood. But uh, I do, you know, I actually design uh pinball machines i did one a couple years ago uh for spooky and now we're actually i'm in the middle of designing another one and i'm actually uh, heading down to texas uh in the united states for a big pinball show in like two days so that should be fun yeah it's it's been pretty fun so i do love you know when we go to like retro events and stuff i often go on the free to play uh pinball machines because you know you you can get you you're not really your money's worth because you're not paying for them but if you're playing right the bar i I only play for like 10 seconds and i'm like yeah it's all my balls gone (laughs) <laughs> I'm not the yeah, best. that's that's always fun when you can go to free play areas. Oh, a lot of arcades do that. Uh, like that's kind of a trend here. Is an arcade you'll pay like twenty dollars or something for a few hours, and then basically all the games are on free play. Mm. So not just shows. That's kind of a it's like the new trend for what arcades do exist. At what point did your fascination with how things work start? Well, I don't know. Probably when I was a little kid. I mean, I would take apart all my toys. You know, take apart my stompers and my. Uh, transformers and uh, i had the lincoln logs and the erector sets and all that stuff back then so pretty much as far back as i can remember i pretty much everything i ever got as present or as a toy as a kid everything got taken apart except my first camcorder because that was far too expensive to mess with you know kind of like that and I, that, that still happens today uh we did a teardown on the nintendo switch and i think there was one screw left over and i'm like well you know that's that's normal you should always have one screw left over <laughs> after your teardown it, yeah, as far back as I can remember. I, I was born in 75. So did you get any um, electric shocks as a kid then? Oh, yeah. I mean, it still happens today. Cause I, would do, I would do stupid things, which is so ridiculous to think about. But I was, I was like, oh, I wonder what happens if I would stick like an LED into a, into a, a main socket, as you would call it. And uh, it's like, oh, wow, magic smoke comes out of it immediately. That's fun. Uh, but nothing too awful. I mean, I'm sure I burned myself a lot, but that, that still happens now. And, you know, I'm just kind of used to it. Solder iron's only like, you know, it's not that hot. It's not like it's you know, going to melt your flesh off or anything. By and large, it was pretty safe. But I was really big into, like, computer programming. That was something I got into as well back in the 80s. And once once I started getting into that, I kind of completely forgot about modding and hacking for quite a long time, like decades, actually. So what was the uh, first kind of gaming mod that you did when you got back into it? Uh, well, the first thing that I modded, I... I found an old atari 2600 as i mentioned before and i was like wow there's so much wasted space on the circuit board maybe i could hack it down and try to make a uh, a smaller version of it and yeah it was just a uh, one winter i just decided to do that as a fun project that was like oh man that was so long ago now that's insane to think about that was 17 years ago oh man how time flies uh, back in 2000 yeah and i uh so I grabbed this Atari and I like chopped it up with a bandsaw and I kind of reverse engineered it. And I, I didn't know what I was doing really because I, re- I really wish I would have kept into electronics um, as a teenager and a young adult. But I kind of let that lapse in my life for a long time. I really regret that. But oh well, we're going to do. Although programming has been useful as well. Uh, yeah, so I, I built this uh, Atari 2600 portable mod just, just for fun. And then just I randomly talked about it on a on a forum or something, and I had a little GeoCity site. That's how long ago this was, and then I started getting all this traffic, and people were just amazed by it. And then I started doing more of them. I think you could say it's probably the best way to learn hardware is just to kind of experiment with it. Then, uh, maybe not the best way, but it certainly is a way. I mean that that still happens now. Like right now, I'm uh, I'm working on reverse engineering the that uh, Nintendo PlayStation prototype thing. Yeah. We have it in our shop at the moment, and uh, it's the same thing. You have to go. You have to dig up the data sheets. You have to hook it up to the scope. Of course, that's a lot more sophisticated than what I was doing when I was 23 or however old I was back then. Uh, yeah, so it's the same kind of thing. It's, it's discovery and just prodding around and seeing what you can find. It's kind of like digital archaeology. Maybe maybe not digital, uh, copper archaeology. I suppose you could probably dig up a piece of copper, you know. 
Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of fun. It still happens. I still really like um, the old stuff. Like a couple of years ago, I, I did something I'd always wanted to do. I like hand soldered uh, a computer from scratch because I I've seen people do that, and I was like, I got to do that as a like hardcore thing. And what I did was I, uh, oh yeah, you guys are probably fans. It was a ZX Spectrum or ZX Spectrum. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it's there's nothing in that thing. It's it's spectacularly cheaply built, and so I just. <laughs> It, I, you know, I just got the minimum parts and I started it together and actually made like a little uh, portable version of it with a little keyboard and everything. And it was really fun because I was like, I don't know, I just thought it was fun to uh, build a computer from scratch just using the schematics and almost everything in that is off the shelf. Um, these days, it's kind of like there's a lot of computer companies that are closing off machines and hiding how to actually use them with stuff like the Raspberry Pi coming out. Do you think it's really important for kids to learn how hardware actually works? Yeah, I think it is. You see that there's a very high level of abstraction that people have to deal with from their code to how the machine actually works. Uh, I, I come across that quite often on people who are programmers. You, you program at such a high level nowadays that you don't really even think about how the computer works. I mean, there are programmers who don't, necessarily understand what bits are for instance and because nowadays it's like oh i've got all this memory i don't care but in the past you were like oh i've got a byte i can store eight status flags with that and yeah it's it's all been abstracted away um but you know there are you know there are concepts like with programming you have like ands and ors and you do xors as well and all sorts of things like that and those you know are analogous to the logic gates that actually control a computer as well mm-hmm. I mean, there's one thing that, yeah, you kind of separate the user from all that magic. I think that's one of the reasons why Linux, you know, is so popular with like, uh, you know, computer enthusiasts is because it's much like how things were in the 80s where everything was a command line and you had to kind of do it from scratch. And I think people like getting at the nuts and bolts of the computer in that way. I think that's part of that appeal. Uh, Personally, I I had to live through that in the 80s. That's why I'm not really into Linux because... I just don't have the patience for that. But I certainly remember those days, like, you know, typing programs out of magazines. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if the hardware is necessarily that locked down. It's glued together. I mean, that's that's the worst part. But uh, it's just, yeah, it, it just seems like this magic device. And you don't you no longer really think about how it works, just what it does. There was something very magical about, like, you know, poking and peeking into, like, RAM on the Commodore 64 to see what you'd hit and... <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah. Banging the metal. Yeah, and then you could very easily crash the quote-unquote operating system or the, the 8K of ROM or whatever was bootstrapping the screen. Yeah, and then you just hit the reset button, and sometimes your RAM might still be there if you're lucky. Ha, 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 ha. Into the monitor. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 weird. Like, it's even – it's kind of hard to crash Windows even. Like, I'm probably jinxing myself later on. Like, it's not like the good old days where you're always getting those blue screens of death. It's like – Everything is like so protected now and protected memory and all sorts of safety. And yeah, of course, nowadays, if, you know, if computers crash as much as they did in the old days, people would be like, they, they wouldn't accept it. I was going to say, it's kind of crazy that we're like, you know, almost romantically nostalgic for blue screens of death now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's thinking about your first bike ride, even though you scraped up your knees and your elbows. It's still a romantic notion that uh, you're just running around like a kid doing things like that. Yeah, I actually have. Um, what did I get? Oh, some one of my fans sent me an Atari 800 computer, which was my first computer, and I still have my first computer. But I'm like, if I cannibalize this one, I can beef up my original one. Like this one has a nicer case, for instance. So, one of these weekends, if I have some time, I'm gonna recap everything and you know replace all the electrolytic capacitors and just beef it up and. So I've had that thing for like 30, yeah, 30 years this spring. It's amazing, though, what looking at an old piece of hardware and holding it, though, the memories it can bring back. Yeah, it's like, oh, man, I remember I remember using this, and it was so insane. And the weird thing is, it's like you turn on that old equipment, you still have muscle memory of all the keystrokes and everything works. You'd think you'd forget, but you don't necessarily. You still start peeking and poking. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like riding a bike, I guess, isn't it, in that way? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, yeah. Although I did notice, I, I don't know, I was doing something in the command line in Windows, and I typed ls, so I did get a little confused there. I thought I was in Linux, but uh, yeah, I, I always had this idea. I thought it'd be cool. I haven't gotten around to it though. But like, get like an old uh, tube TV and like an old desk, and make like a '80s computer, like 
workstation and like kind of, you know, recreate it. I was really thrilled once. Uh, can't remember what it was. I built something for somebody. So it was a, a client. And they're like, oh, I'm going to send you a special bonus in the mail. I'm like, okay, cool. And it, they, I get this box, and it's a it's still in box Atari 1050 disk drive for the computer. And it's it's so minty nib that it still has the paper f- fake disk inside of it for transport. You know, like remove this disk for transport. I'm oh, like, wow. oh, this is so <laughs> awesome. So then I immediately took that and I started. I took all my old discs and I started copying them over because the, especially like in Europe, there's. So many people making peripherals for old 8-bit computers, you know, USB peripherals, SD card readers. I mean, it's very much alive, and it's so cool that you can take that data and put it onto modern computers to archive it and also use the connections to run it off original hardware. You can download a disk image and then run it on your real machine. Yeah, I've got I've got a Commodore 64 that's networked to my PC, and you can just flash disk images over like an Ethernet card, and then it writes it on the 1541 drive. It's it's nuts. You can load tapes so, on the MP3 player as well. Yeah. And then. <laughs> I remember I used it when we were showing the the ZX Spectrum. Was the uh, there's an app on Android, and yeah, you can load the tape images, and it will just play it right off your phone over a patch cable and you can load up, you know, load the tape drive that way. It's pretty insane what they've got. Yeah, if I'd have saw that when I was a kid, it would blow my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was lucky. On my first computer, I had a five and a quarter disk drive. I never actually had to deal with the tapes. You were lucky, definitely. <laughs> I was just, it's, yeah, if you look at the schematics, it's incredibly impressive how, uh, how to a cost, so to speak, they built the ZX Spectrum. It's just so, so cheap. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, uh, your first ever kind of public geek exposure was on uh, the screensavers how did that come about oh god that was a million years ago that was like when i was like really skinny um how did that come i think i i done a few i done a few shows and conventions at that point uh but yeah that was that was back in the was like 2003 or 2004 i believe uh i don't know they just uh, they just called me up and they're like hey uh do you want to you know do this thing and i'm like sure and uh they flew me out. To, I think we filmed that in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, I just brought the gizmos I had. We did up at the show. We talked about it. And uh, actually, that that's, that, that's actually is what, what got me my book deal mm-hmm. is uh, not necessarily the fact that I appeared on the show, but I I had edited this video at home. And like, well, here's the process. And I like, you know, did this quick cut video, and, like showed how I chopped up a motherboard and blah, blah, blah. And then they played that over the air um, during the segment. And then this this uh, publisher contacted me like, oh, we were really impressed by your very concise and to the point video within that segment. Um, you want to like think about writing a book about how to hack consoles? And I'm like, sure. And that was another fun adventure in my life. Uh, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I'd been on TV and stuff multiple times. But, yeah, I think uh, the 2004 appearance, that was probably the most fruitful I was going to say about the you know writing a book about hacking video game systems. I mean that that was quite. You must imagine that was pretty quite a niche subject for a publisher to call up and ask you to do. I mean, was it was it an interesting process to go through? Uh, it was it was a lot of work. Um, I think I started it in May of two thousand four. Yes, and uh, it's a, there's a lot of things you have to do. You have to do a lot of formatting. You have to use templates. You have to send in things for milestones and edit review. And I think. And I wasn't just writing a book. I was also uh, – there's like eight projects in the book. So I was designing, building, testing the projects and writing the book at the same time. And I did all of that. I think I wrapped it in October of that same year. So uh, I, I'm not even sure how I did it that quickly. I must have worked a lot faster back then. Yeah, it, I don't think I would probably write a book again because honestly, if your last name isn't King or Rolling, there's not a lot of money in it. But I guess it's something I can put on my bucket list as having done. Well, uh, what is your favorite project and why? Well, the one one that I was really, really happy with was I uh, I did a couple of Atari 800 uh, portable computers. And the second or third iteration, I made it all beige and brown and kind of ugly, like the 80s. And I was really proud of that one. That one turned out really well. Um, the Xbox 360 laptop that I made, I know we're kind of getting far away from retro gaming here. That one caught a lot of people's eyes. I, like, I gained a lot of notoriety just from doing that. So that one, it was kind of a pain in the butt to build, but it actually, you know, it got a lot of mileage, I should say. I've done so many projects now, I'm kind of running out of, you know, like, <laughs> like oh, what should I build next? 
I'd kind of I'd like to bodge together a few more uh, 8-bit computers. I discovered that the uh, you guys familiar with the uh, Sega what was it the Sega SG one thousand the predecessor to the Master System yeah 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 so that had the uh, what was it the it basically the Texas Instruments that had the same video chip as the MX MSX and the ColecoVision and then it turns out you could actually the uh, chip inside of the Master System has the same legacy modes as the SG one thousand which means you could technically run a of ColecoVision game on the Master System, well, at least with this video chip, its video chip could support that. So then I'm wondering how far that would go because you know the Master System games work on the Sega Genesis using legacy support. So I'm just, I've, I've always kind of wondered how, like, if you could get like a ColecoVision to like boot up a display screen on a Sega Genesis, something like that might be kind of fun. Some little hidden functionality. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. I would think that it would probably work because they had several layers of backwards compatibility. I mean, the Genesis chipset is just an evolution of the Master System. The Master System was an evolution of the Texas Instruments chip. That was in everything. And yeah, that kind of stuff is fun to, fun to look at. And I've noticed some other things over the years, like the uh, the way the bits are clocked on the Super Nintendo in a certain way. Like all of the, the, like the shoulder buttons and X and Y are on the second byte of the 16-bit data packet. And I've, like, I've always wondered, like, to do like some digital archaeology, like, you know, did they want the... Super Nintendo to be backwards compatible. I think they at least considered it at one point. Uh, things like that I kind of find interesting, like, you know, digging up the past and figuring out how those things worked and not even necessarily how they worked, but what the thinking was behind them. And uh, one project I've always wanted to see is a Commodore Amiga laptop because many have tried and we've had briefcases, wooden monstrosities, and all these kinds Wasn't of Wasn't there? Oh, they, okay, the Atari ST had one, right? Yeah, it did, yeah. I mean, like a real one from yeah. Atari? Yeah, the Susie like or something, was it? Yeah. The Stacy, wasn't yeah, it called? That was a, yeah, that might have been it. But there was never an official Amiga portable? No. So, no, the ST probably got it because musicians liked it a lot. Huh. Well, I didn't, it shouldn't, it, I don't think it would be that hard to make a portable. I mean, you couldn't you just do it in FPGA or would you want it to be a real hardware? Oh, real hardware, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you one if you want, man. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, well, that's one system I have never really dived into. I, you know, I wouldn't. What kind of video output? It's is it RGB with a half color brightness, or do you know? Yeah, it's RGB. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah and half color on uh, the Amiga six hundreds. Uh, well, they're quite small. There is like a, a model that's almost a portable, but it doesn't have a screen. I would think some of the later models, they probably would combine many chips into a single chip. That would probably get closer to the goal. Sorry, sorry. I assume they have modern uh, flash storage solutions for those now, like hard drive emulators, right? Yeah, compact flash and SD cards right. can be used on there now and stuff, yeah. It's an interesting yeah. area to explore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I'm not sure exactly when I would have time to get around to it, but I would. that might be worth a crack because I've done so many other systems. But I haven't, I mean, I even built a, a replica Apple One once, but never the Amiga. I, I mean, the Amiga is very cool. It'd be it'd be worth a because it was designed by the same guy who designed my precious Atari 800, J Minor. Yeah, the yeah. legend. Yeah. How do you uh, prepare for a console hack then? Well, um, I like to take it apart, see what's inside. Um, obviously, things are harder to hack now because you know you have like eight layer boards and all this nonsense. I usually I try to pick something that looks like it would be easy to do, doesn't have a lot of power, uh, maybe can be shrunken down. Like on the as as I mentioned, the Atari. 2600, all of the uh, circuitry is in a small area in the center with the RF shield around it. The rest of the board is just just holding switches and buttons and stuff. Like nowadays, if they made that, they would never make the circuit board that big because it'd be unnecessarily expensive. Uh, But I just, you know, I try to find out whatever pinouts I can find, find the power rails, figure out what can be removed, what can be moved. And then I hack it up and then do surgery like a heart bypass until I can get it working again. And then once I have it as small as I can get it, I draw it into the computer, and I drop a cool case around it to figure out what kind of batteries will run it, try to find a screen. That used to be kind of a problem, but now it's actually pretty easy. You can get, like, LCD screens off Amazon for, like, 15 bucks. And then I design a really cool case so it looks cool and inspires people. I mean, that's what I'm best at, really, is just making it look cool. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, like, the Amigas in, in, like, wooden suitcases and stuff. And I guess it just needs, like, the 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 magic but i have like a cnc and a laser cutter and 3d printers and all that stuff so that makes the uh 
that makes the bling really easy. Yeah, watching but the routing is always really nice <laughs> going around. Yeah, well, I've really, I've really gotten a shine to uh, the 3D printers. I used to, I started out thinking they were a gimmick, and now I have, uh, you know what? Off the top of my head, I don't even know how many I have. Seven, maybe six or seven. So, although I like my laser the best, the lasers, yeah, I love my laser. Uh, we do the show now. Like right now, I spend all my time doing the show and then doing pinball design. So I don't have as much time to randomly hack old consoles as I used to. Uh, maybe someday, you know, I'll get back into it. Well, one system you, you know, obviously did put the time uh, aside to work on was the um, Nintendo PlayStation prototype. Um, how did you get approached to do that then? Okay, so the story behind that was uh, there's a show here in Wisconsin, the state that I live in, um, called the Midwest Gaming Classic, which... Coincidentally, I named because there was a contest to name it. I, my name got chosen, and I won a free joystick. Yay. But anyway, so I go to it. So it's like the local big show. It's like an hour from here. And it was it was kind of serendipitous, too, because I actually had a TED Talk that weekend. And I was like, oh, crap. I, I'm going to miss the gaming convention because I have this TED Talk. But then my producer was like, hey, I think we could probably change your flight so you could get back late at night and at least go to part of the show. And I'm like, do it. And she did. Actually, I almost didn't make that flight because the train was late, but I did. So just by the skin of my teeth, I was able to make it to that show. And uh, the uh, the guy who had found the system, uh, Terry and his son, Dan, they were showing it at the Midwest Gaming Classic. So it was like the next morning. And, uh, you know, we'd been we of course, I got I got to the show in time to drink all night, of course. So the next morning we woke up and uh, they did a presentation on it. And I was a bit I was a bit frustrated because they didn't have very much information about it. And so afterwards, we talked to them and like, hey, we have, we have this Ben Heck show. I was wondering if you guys would like to be a special guest so we could like do a teardown on this unit and see what's inside and kind of document it. And uh, yeah, we talked to them for a while and then they they agreed to do it and then they brought it by. I think like last summer, and we did some additional tests. We found some. It it had been well, it hadn't been damaged, but some of the capacitors had failed. Uh, so we did that. Then we did a follow up last fall in Portland at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. And then they loaned it to us again. We actually have it right now. I was working on it earlier today. We have it in the shop. And we're going to have it for a few more weeks. So I'm going to just basically reverse engineer as much of it as I can. And the main goal that I'm trying to do is to get the CD-ROM working. That way it could boot a CD-ROM-based game. I mean, you know, you can make, you know, you can make a Super Nintendo or Super Famicom game for it and stick it in. But And you could probably also you know, simulate the drive using compact flash. Like they have that for the Sega Dreamcast. There's like an SD card simulator for the flash, but I think it'd be cool if I can get the drive working. So, uh, right now I'm just trying to get it to play audio CDs, which it tries to do, but there's some error. So that's kind of where I am with my reverse engineering on it. That must be such, such an interesting product to, to get your hands on though and explore. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that we were, uh, we were cordial enough to, uh, Terry and Dan that they trust us enough trust us enough to loan it to us because it's basically the rarest video game console in existence. And I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna tear it apart and you know, solder <laughs> test points onto it. Because, <laughs> you know, it's it's inside, it's not like it's magic or anything. It's the configuration. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of wires and capacitors. It's basically it's a Super Nintendo with a CD-ROM attached to it. Um, so hardware-wise, it probably wouldn't have been anything special. It would have uh, probably got its clock creamed by the Sega CD-ROM. I mean, the Sega CD-ROM, it's kind of a joke now, but it actually had a good amount of... There was like an extra graphics processor. Yeah. There was an extra audio processor. There was a whole bunch of RAM. There's quite a bit in that, whereas this is... Uh, yeah, it's basically a CD-ROM attached to the external bus of a Super Nintendo, and the cartridge that you plugged in has something like uh, 256K RAM to load games onto. So, you know, it's more interesting as a historical artifact than a gaming powerhouse. I think if it, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different reasons that it had come out. But one of them would have been I don't think it would have actually been that spectacular. It wouldn't have added really any capabilities to the Super Nintendo. It would just would just added mass storage. Was it kind of interesting looking at the chips as well? Because I guess you'd have to guess, oh, these are Sony ones, these are Nintendo. And it was a big hodgepodge of different things in there. Well, um, the Super Nintendo had Sony chips in it for audio as well. Uh, it had uh, actually the the father of PlayStation designed the, the chip that is in the Super Nintendo. 
so there's a Sony, basically a, a Sony coprocessor, and then there is a Sony DSP because the Super Nintendo has its very distinctive sound because everything on the Super Nintendo is basically sample based. So they load up the 64K of RAM with samples, and then the coprocessor and the DSP take those samples from the audio RAM and play them to create the notes, sound effects, and and whatnot for the Super Nintendo. So this system, so you know, Sony and Nintendo had already worked together at that point. So this system, uh, it's you know has all the same chips as a Super Nintendo. It has the same two Sony chips, and then the same RAM, the same ROM, the same double PPU that the Super Nintendo does. And then it has uh, basically a few more Sony chips. Uh, there's a CD-ROM drive controller, and then another one that is uh, there is one that I don't know what it is. It's not labeled. There's no part number off of it. Every, every other chip that's on the system is a basically off-the-shelf CD-ROM RAM controller of some kind. Yeah, there is one chip that can't be identified, but the rest of it's, you know, pretty pretty run-of-the-mill. If you, a person had the time to fully reverse engineer it, there's no reason you couldn't build a CD-ROM add-on that could plug into the bottom of an existing Super Nintendo because that was going to be a product as well. Well, that was the only real surprise then, was it, that, that unidentified chip? There's nothing really else spectacular in there. Nope, everything else is completely off the shelf. And again, like, as I mentioned, if you look at the Sega Genesis CD-ROM add-on, it added a second processor video audio i mean it was almost like another system it was another system that was actually more powerful than the Sega genesis uh whereas this was more or less a large storage attachment well speaking of um nintendo products that you've worked on recently i mean i loved your virtual boy mod um oh, yes. people, you turned it into the virtual man that was awesome I mean, what, what inspired yep, you to work yep. on that system then well you know vr is kind of in the news i don't want to say hot because i think it's kind of a fad but uh you know everyone's talking about vr and ar and microsoft hololens and all this stuff so then i was thinking well the, the virtual boy was an interesting product like i was actually working at uh, a video game store and that first came out and i remember you know we joked about the headaches and you know it was such a flop it was like 180 dollars. then it was on clearance down to 25 bucks at toy stores not even a year later it was just a disaster but I, you know, I was like, why doesn't this thing strap to your head? Like, who wants to sit at a table? It's kind of, it's kind of dumb. So we were talking about doing an episode where we try to, you know, hack it and improve it. And then serendipitously, it's the second time I've used that word in this in this interview. This guy's like, hey, can you fix my Virtual Boy? And I'm like, sure. Want me to mod it as well? <laughs> so that's how that came about. Yeah, it's interesting. It has um, these two mirrors that oscillate, almost like, kind of like a galvanometer. And uh, so there's a vertical line of LEDs, and the mirror oscillates to make that vertical line of LEDs scan horizontally to create a full image. It was pretty clever, though, the design, actually. When I watched your video, I didn't realize it worked like that. Yeah, it's it's a neat little system. I mean, I think it had more problems than just being you know, black and red in color, mostly the portability. But yeah, it was fun. Like if you think about it, the controller was kind of ahead of its time. It was, you know, kind of some shades of the later GameCube controller. And I don't think anyone really, well, I don't think people necessarily want VR now, but uh, they certainly weren't interested in 1995. But, you know, it was it was a risk. I mean, I would say that's more of a risk than Nintendo takes nowadays uh but yeah it, it was fun and then uh yeah then you know we also take apart modern things like the switch but mm -hmm. the virtual boy was an interesting footnote in history because yeah it's it was very interesting to see how they did it there are some things about it that are incredibly janky like the uh, the ribbon cables that provide data to the leds that i just mentioned they're basically glued in place mm -hmm. so what happens is over time they come loose and the virtual boys fail uh, but I actually designed a little 3D printed part that could slip over it. And uh, those files are online. So if people have a virtual boy that doesn't work, they could print my my clip. Yay. I was going to say your, your 3D printer came in very handy in that video, didn't it? 3D printer always comes in very handy. I don't, it's one of those things like I, I didn't know that I wanted one. And then once I got one, I was like, how did I live without this? Well, speaking of Nintendo products that you've worked on as well, I mean, you made the... Um... NES Micro years ago. I mean, uh, long, oh, long, yeah. long, long before the Mini that Nintendo came out with. Yeah, um, that was that was using one of those, uh, well, what do they call them? Ness on a chip? NOAC? Hmm. 
like like 99% of pirate consoles are just nest on a chip console. And uh, yeah, that was back when they were all put inside of ripoff N64 joystick shells. But I, I got one and it was like, oh, you know, 500 games built in, whatever. And I took it apart and I'm like, oh, well, this has a, most of those had a Famicom connection on the bottom. But it's pretty, fairly trivial just to rewire the Famicom connection to work as a Nintendo connection. So you're able to get those um, cheap Chinese knockoff uh, game systems and you got a, a pretty small Nintendo out of it, like a Nintendo on a chip. There were <laughs> like half the size of it was just the cartridge connector. And then I remember, yeah, you, you what you would do is you would, because um, the main difference between the uh, Nintendo and the Famicom is the there's more pins in the Nintendo cartridge because the, uh, the pins in the center of the cartridge routed directly to the expansion port on the Nintendo. They were never used, but that's what they added. Whereas the Famicom does not have the expansion port at the bottom. It just has a, a plug at the back for the disk system. So, yeah, you basically uh, just spread the pins out more, if that makes any sense. Like, imagine the 60-pin... Uh, Famicom connector, cut it in half, slide it left and right, and that's basically uh, basically what the American uh, Nintendo uses. Have you had any other hacks that have really impressed you, like just seeing them around or on YouTube or anything? Other people's hacks? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's people... Yeah, they do some amazing things. Uh, I actually think it was at the same, the same game convention. Someone had showed me a hacked-up Wii... And what these people had done, like actually they were like old community members, they they had bought many Wii's and like kind of sacrificially destroyed them. So they would take a Wii and they, they were sanding down the motherboard layer by layer and reverse engineering all of the traces on the multi-layer board. It was insane. And once they had mapped it all out, then they could tell exactly how far they could chop up a Nintendo Wii and it would keep it working. And they had it down to like, the GPU CPU die and then like half an inch around that. So like, I don't know, one eighth of the original motherboard of the Wii. It was astounding. You could like hold it in your palm. I mean, that, that was quite amazing. Uh, the, the system oh, like, what? kill me. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had, uh, again, they had like a SD card simulating the DVD drive. Yeah. It, it's like, I couldn't believe they hacked it that small. That was insane. And yeah, they did it. They did it destructively. They basically destroyed a bunch of units to figure out how it worked. You know, just like Leonardo da Vinci digging up corpses and chopping them up. You know, it's it's kind of the same thing. I think it's really impressive. As I've mentioned before, anytime I see someone who's like, "Oh yeah, we wrote an SD card reader, we we slapped it onto a BBC Acorn, and we got it to play full motion video in black and white." Like anytime people do that, it's really impressive. And you know, you see people say, oh, look at what these 8-bit computers can do. Look at the demo scene. It's like, why didn't our games look like that back in the 80s? Well, of course, back then, nobody had the time to make the games look like that. But it's always amazing to see what those systems were technically capable of. Well, what's the worst console or system design you've seen? I really don't like the N64. It's so flaky. It's really easy to break. The uh, RAM bus terminators are a pain in the butt. And it, it kind of sucks, too, because there's a whole generation of young people that just worship that console, and they're always asking me to make portable versions of it, but oh my god, it's such a pain in the butt to work with. Like, we're we're halfway through a build on that now, but we need to finish. Like, uh, someone actually started a change.org petition saying that Ben needs to finish his N64 portable. It's like, oh yeah, that's a major problem in the world. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would say, yeah, as far as hacking, the N64 is hands down my least favorite system to work with. It, it's I mean, it's well designed and it's it's efficient and small, but there's just so many crazy things about it. <laughs> Do you feel that hardware is kind of falling short of its accessibility potential? So, you know, for disabled users and stuff like that. I think it's gotten better a little bit. You start to see uh, like uh, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One both now support uh, operating system button remapping. And it's bizarre because like you can look back to the Sega Genesis or the Super Nintendo games, and a lot of games gave you the ability to remap the buttons. Like, oh, I want this to be jump, and I want this to be shoot. And for whatever reason, that kind of went away. Like in the 2000s, controller customizable, you know, customizing controller and remapping just disappeared. It's like, oh, here's your three different, you know, Call of Duty stick layouts. Choose one. 
and it's kind of it's kind of come back. So now you can actually manually. It, it, it kind of sucks that the games aren't doing the remapping. It's the operating system doing the remapping on top of the games. But some of that is coming back. But yeah, one thing with accessibility is that the more buttons and controls they put into these controllers, the harder it is to try to remap those in such a way that someone might be able to get at them. And also, like we've had that with the, the ways Sony builds their controllers, just like the physical way they're made. They're basically impossible to hack. Not not like, oh, they don't want us to hack it. They just, you know, it's just not done in a way that's easy to mod, mod, modify and solder. That's why on our website, we only offer Xbox One. It's not some sort of conspiracy because we like Microsoft. It's that the way they, they make their controllers really straightforward, you know, signal ground, easy disconnects, solid PCBs. It's just a lot easier to hack. So when we're doing mods for people, uh, that's why we concentrate on that system because it's the most achievable for us of the next gen consoles. Well, I imagine you know a lot of your kind of portable work that you know you've you've converted into portables, for example, that's been made possible due to improvements in battery technology. I mean, we've got the Switch, which is like you know potentially six hours of battery. I remember the GameCube right. and the Atari Lynx; it was like twenty minutes, you know. So, well, it wasn't <laughs> quite that bad, but uh, it felt like well, it. well, yeah. I mean, yeah, lithium ion and lithium polymer batteries are. You know, they've been around for a long time, but they didn't really start becoming popular really until like the mid to late 90s. Because the big thing was with them is that they had they had to be made safe. So they were around for many decades, but they weren't really safe until, uh, probably, I don't know, late 90s. But the, yeah, I remember when those came on the scene because I started seeing them in camcorders. And I'm like, wow, these things are amazing. I had this, uh, this Sony battery for my camera, and it was kind of like a... Almost kind of like a big, kind of a big stick, but you could film all day with that. It was awesome, versus the old nickel metal hydride and nickel cadmium batteries that we saw in the past. But then what happens now is like, okay, yeah, now we have this really high capacity lithium ion battery, and now let's beef up the power of the system so that it <laughs> uses up all the, you know, like if you took the battery out of the Nintendo Switch and hooked it up to. Uh, an equivalent circuit for like the Game Gear. Actually, no, that's not true because older things like the links and the Game Gear, the systems were weaker, but they're also done with a more primitive process, meaning they were not nearly as power efficient. So that's not necessarily true. Okay, let me let me put it this way: if you had a system, if you had like a system that was as powerful as Sega Genesis and it was rebuilt with modern technology, then yes, a small a battery like in the Switch would power it for days. It would be like smartwatch. But you know, it's like oh, my garage is filled with junk. I'm going to build a new garage so I have more room. And then your new garage immediately gets filled with junk. Same thing happens with batteries. As much as there is available, it all gets used. Well, um, you've had around 33 million views worldwide. Um, how do you feel about entering that kind of special club of YouTubers? <laughs> oh, uh, my, my YouTube channel isn't. I mean, it's cool, but I mean, like the average unboxing channel usually does better than us or a cat videos. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess it's OK. I mean, I don't necessarily feel like I'm that YouTube famous, although I will say that, you know, our YouTube channel, we, we build things, we try to teach things. So I feel that our channel is of more value to people than, you know, like 90 percent of YouTube channels are basically just bitching about other YouTube channels. So I like the fact that we're uh, we do more than just drama, and we don't just uh, read a story off of a website and then recite it back into a microphone over footage of us playing a video game, which is also most of YouTube. So, I will sanctimoniously say that I am proud of that aspect of our show. <laughs> well, how did you get involved um, working with Element Fourteen then? Their ad agency, or one of the one of the agencies they're working with, actually contacted me uh, about seven years ago. And they're like, hey, we've got this client that wants to do video content. Would you be interested? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds interesting at the time. And so we, we had a couple of meetings. And then I'm like, oh, it's an electronic distributor. Okay. And then we, we just did a bunch of meetings and we came up with an idea for a show. And it's evolved radically over the years. Like the original show is like not even anywhere close to what it is now. But yeah, I was like, hey, you know, I like it. I think it'd be cool if we built things. But uh, you know, I was a big fan of Mythbusters, but I'm like, what if we build things that kind of had a purpose? Like we build something that might help a person with disabilities or we build a, a robotic luggage that can follow you around. Like I didn't want to just build things just for the sake of building them because that's not necessarily satisfying. So that was kind of the original pitch is that we just kind of build things and then talk about electronics and the electronics community 
through the building of our projects. And what we're doing right now in our current season is we're working on like three long, longer term builds. We're going to like actually kind of build them right and then see which one turns out the best. And then the best one we'll try to make into a Kickstarter or possibly a retail product. So what's next then, Ben? Have you got any uh, hacks in progress at the moment that we can look forward to then? What's coming up on the channel? Uh, well, we're doing uh, some long-term builds. We're trying to make a miniature pinball machine kit so that people could like make their own little game with their kids and program it. We're working on a... Uh, like a hot glue gun that kind of works like a 3D printer. So you know how they have those three doodler pens? Yeah. We're kind of trying to do the same thing with hot glue. So you're not like pumping the trigger constantly. It like gives you like a nice constant flow. So we're working on that. Then we're also doing, it's kind of hard to explain. It's like a uh, kind of like a Sudoku logic puzzle game where you're given these scenarios on a screen and you have to put in the patch cords to complete the circuits like the logic gates in order to give the right answer. So as we mentioned earlier, it uh, kind of teaches people how logic gates works and gives them brain teasers to try to sort it out. So we're doing that in the show. Then I'm also uh, working on a new pinball design, as I mentioned. As far as mods and hacks, uh, right now I don't have, really have anything in the works. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, yeah, maybe I'll take a look at an Amiga because I know there's a very dedicated following to that. So. That might be fun to do eventually, but it, it would probably take me a while. We'd love to see that. Yeah, and I can send you some pictures of monstrosities as well. <laughs> <laughs> so with those monstrosities inspire me, I'm like, I could do better than that. Right? <laughs> okay. Well, you know, yeah, always, so pretty much just that. Well, it's always a good day when a new uh, Ben Heck video lands in my uh, you know YouTube subscription list. So just keep up the good work, Ben. All right, well, I'm glad you enjoyed them. Yeah, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, no problem. No problem.